you haven't already, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. Thank you, Ryan, for reading for us as we uh, are in our series entitled Strangers in a Strange Land. As I was meditating upon this passage this past week, one of the things that I noticed was how Jesus has become the stone that people trip over. And uh, I couldn't help but thinking of, for me, I, I used to be in track and, uh, years ago, many pounds ago. And um, I remember one of the worst things you could do is tripping over something. But when I, it made me also think of something else. You know how memories trigger memories? And I had, uh, when I used to run track, I used to hear that song by the Beatles, Revolution. Do you remember that? It was from the Nike Air Max commercials in the, the late 80s. Like, you say you want a revolution, well, you know. Remember that song? Right? And I, I couldn't help thinking about it because I think Jesus started a revolution. You know, there's a lot of revolutions that are going on in our world right now, where there's a, a rising up against the old regime, and everything crumbles. And after just being in India, I, I had just studied a little bit of Indian history. I'm not that familiar with it, but I read about Gandhi. We've all heard of Gandhi, and how this little guy started a revolution overthrowing the British Empire. It was pretty phenomenal how this one little man started in a nonviolent means a movement that overthrew the entire empire, the British Empire. That's wonderful. And, and I, I think about this man and how he overthrew it, and it's, it's quite amazing. I mean, uh, one of the things that he said about himself, someone asked him the question, like, to go speak someplace. And you know what he said? He said, my life is my message. My life is my message. I think about that how Lenin had been writing about the revolution, and he was writing about actually about the Vietnam War. Uh, the Tet Offensive had just happened, and, and he was thinking about it and trying to figure out how to this revolution to take place. How can we stop the war? He was against the war. He wasn't quite anti-establishment yet, but in the song, he even says, you know, throw out your idea, basically. What's the plan? We all want to change the world, but how do we do it? How, how are we going to go about it? And what he didn't know is that there had been a revolution that was started 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus broke in, his life was his message. So much greater than Gandhi. He did it in a pretty profound way as well. His, his message was completely overwhelming. I mean, he, by his life, was declaring that Satan's kingdom, and that's what he's called the ruler and power of this world, and that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, that he broke in and he was showing that this world is ending, God's kingdom is coming, and it's going to break through in the hearts of men. And if we want a revolution, and I think we all want a spiritual revolution, we want to see our life count for something that is significant. We want to defeat sin and live in righteousness. And how do we do that? By trusting in Christ, by looking to Him. And that's what we're going to do today. If you want to, you say you want a revolution in your spiritual life, and many of us do, that's why we, we make resolutions in the, the new year, because we want to be different, right? We all want to be different. We all know our sins. We all know our struggles. We know our pains. We know our problems. We know our hookups and hangups. We know our bad habits. And we intimately are all too familiar with the sins that we wrestle with day in and day out. Jesus knew that. Jesus came in to break that hold of sin and Satan on your life and mine. But by the power of His Spirit, we can be transformed. We don't, ever, we don't have to live that life that we did before. That if we turn to Him and, and embrace Him, then He places His Spirit in our lives and enables each one of us by faith to live the life that He has destined us to live. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. That makes me want to learn more, to look to Him, to see what He has for us. And that's what I want us to look at today. If you haven't opened with me yet, then please do so now as we jump into 1 Peter chapter 2. And we kick this off and look at it. Let's 
really try to draw this out. This draw, draw this out. How do we enter into this revolution? Well, at first it starts by this: responding to His redemption. Responding to His redemption. Look at verse four. As you come to Him, that's how the ESV words it. But it's actually a participle in Greek, and it's as you are coming to Him, you are being built. See, it almost looks like you come to him, but it's, it's more of a, a present understanding, coming to him. Now, you have to come to him over and over and over again, but you have to come to him that first time by responding to his redemption. See, you can't be a part of the revolution by sitting in the sidelines. You have to enter into the fray. Each one of us do. We have to individually come to him, receive him as Lord and Savior, to be born again, born by the Spirit of Almighty God, quickened, awakened, made alive, born from above. A transformation occurs. We go from darkness to light. We go from death to life. We go from the old nature to a new nature, the God himself places within each one of us. That's what we are to do. We need to be responding to his redemption, each one of us. Now, this redemption is made available in two different ways. First of all, it's made available by Jesus' favor. Jesus' favor. You know that? We don't have salvation because of who we are. There's nothing about us that's pretty that makes us be selected for the team. You know, we're the kid that gets picked last every time they draw a team. We're the kids that, that, that they just didn't want. We're the leftovers in a way. Because we're, by nature, rebellious. But it was because of Jesus' favor that we are accepted. Jesus was favored in the sight of God. Remember, what does Jesus say? I mean, what does God the Father say at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. See, Jesus had the favor of Almighty God. That's what we're seeing in this text. Look for it again. Look for it. See what we see here in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Chosen. The word there for chosen is literally elect, choice. Now, it's interesting that in Jerusalem, um, there's, there was the Jewish temple. That stood. It was the center of Jewish activity. And this mindset, this talking about a living stone, I mean, it's a, it's a very strange wording. Because why? Stones aren't alive. Right? But it's saying it's a living stone. And it would evoke, in the Jewish mindset, imagery of the temple. Now, in the temple, they, they had these huge stones. I don't know if any of you have been to Jerusalem, but the, the foundation of the, the wall, or the temple mount, is still standing. And God had dec- declared in his word that the stones that were to be selected couldn't be hewn on the temple site. Matter of fact, and we see during Solomon's time when the temple had been constructed, they had to hewn and make and shape these stones in the quarry and then bring them as they were and fit them together. And do you know that they fit together so perfectly that you can't put a piece of paper in it? And they're huge. They range from ten, um, two tons the smallest one or 10 tons that's the average to 400 tons is the biggest and it's 16 feet thick it's huge and they're saying here that jesus is the chosen stone the foundation stone that fits the entire thing together and it literally means head of the corner when it says that uh, in, in greek it's, he's literally the head of the corner which brings two walls together it's the foundation of everything else that's what god was doing in offering us salvation he was bringing jew one side gentile together by faith in him allowing gentiles to be recipients of the great plan and mission of god he brought all of us who were far away strangers to the promises and covenant of god and brought us near through the blood of jesus christ that's an amazing thing jesus is chosen he's also look within your text precious now i was talking with my small group and i don't know about you but i read that text and the first thing when i see the word precious is what gollum the hobbit gollum i precious you know and I, I was like, i got to get that imagery out of my mind. 
But see, for Gollum, the ring symbolized the most precious and valuable thing. I mean, he would spend his life to get it. This most powerful ring. See, Christ is infinitely more precious. In Greek, it means, it means high, costly, very precious, extremely valuable. What's the most precious thing that you own? Think about that. Put that in your mind's eye for a moment. What is the most precious thing you own? I would, for most of us, I would guess we wouldn't think of things. Think of people. My children are infinitely precious to me. Each one is shaped and, and molded differently, and I love each one, even when they drive me nuts. I love them. But they're precious to me. Jesus is infinitely more precious than our children. He's infinitely more precious than our spouse. He's chosen and precious, favored in the sight of Almighty God, the precious Lamb of God without blemish or wrinkle or spot, the perfect one, he who is without sin, the one who came to identify with us. That's pretty phenomenal, don't you think? But it's not just that. It's not just that. I mean, it's not just him. I mean, it, it is just him that secures our redemption, but then we enter into it by faith. That's the second part there. See, for us to enter into his redemption, redemption, we have it made available through the favor of Jesus Christ, but we have to enter into it and receive it by faith. Each one of us do. That's why if we look within the text, it says in him, or in verse 6, and whoever believes in him, believes. It's for us who believe, those who have received him by faith. We won't be put to shame. So we enter into that redemption that God has made available to us by faith. You can't work your way to God. Do you know that? You're never going to be good enough. Many of us think that we have to, before we come to Jesus, it's like it's, he's a great physician. We think we have to take all the medicine and get cured before we go see the doctor. That doesn't work that way. We think we have to take a shower before we go and take another shower, a heavenly shower. See, God himself comes to us. He wants us to come dirty as we are, offering up who we are and all of our brokenness and all of our sins. That's why Peter, when Jesus came to wash his feet, Peter said to him, Lord, you can't wash my feet. Don't wash my feet. And he, what did Jesus say to him? Unless I wash you, then you'll have no part with me. What was he saying? He was saying that unless I have the depth of your sin, the dirtiness of your soul, you can't be with me. So that's what his sacrifice meant. So we understand that we can receive this redemption. We have to respond to it. And that because, comes because of Jesus' favor. And it comes because or through our faith. But it also means something else. See, God's kingdom's breaking into this world, and man doesn't like it. Fallen man in his flesh wants the old kingdom. Wants the kingdom of sin and self and Satan. He doesn't want God's redemption in his natural state, and he rebels against it. Notice that they reject the, the cornerstone, and the word there in Greek is like they looked at it, they examined it, and they tossed it aside. And they thought, I'll just forget about it. And that's what natural man wants to do. They want to explain Jesus away. They want to remove him from life. And that's what we can't do. We can't remove him from life. See, as soon as we cast him away, eventually every single person trips over him. He's inescapable. You can't get away from Jesus. People try to be objective about Jesus. I love what Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in uh, Manhattan, he said about it. He was talking about the word of God to unbelievers, and they were questioning, and they were saying, we are being objective about the Bible. He said, it's impossible. It is impossible for any of us to be objective about the Bible. He said, we can be objective about other books, such as Caesar's Gaelic Wars, for example. He goes, because it has no effect on us. We can look at it and say, is this of him? Is it not? It has no bearing on our soul. But the Bible is totally different. Why? Because the Bible claims to be a mirror to our soul. And it indicts each one of us and shows us the reality of our sin. And that we are responsible for it and we need to repent of it. 
that's what he's saying there. He said, you can't be objective when it's about you and it's talking about you because you're indicted by it. None of us can be objective in and of ourselves. And so what he's saying there is, is that we are by nature rebellious, and that's what Peter's talking about. Man, in his fallenness, rejects the stone, but he trips over it. And we have to understand that people are tripping all over the place. And, I, and if you're like me, we see the wicked at times, and we get a little envious. Do we not? I struggle with that. I don't know about you, but I do. I see the wicked being blessed, seemingly without a care in the world, going on and doing every sin in the book. And they seem like they, they don't have a care in the world. And I go, Lord, I'm struggling. I'm struggling here. Why am I struggling? And this guy seems to have it made. And he's just sinning in your face. And he says, don't fret about the wicked. Don't fret about them. Don't fret. I'm, I'm wanting them to come to repentance too. And I'm working in a way that you don't understand. Your job is to trust in me. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? It's hard to trust as we go through the day-to-day, as we deal with our coworkers, as we deal with the, the, the other little things that come up and creep in, little conflicts and disagreements and frustrations and misunderstandings. And, and it's, it's tempting to look at the wicked and be envious. But we have to understand that the wicked will be judged one day. And some of us, we go, woohoo! The wicked are going to be judged. Yes. There's a part of us that should weep and hope for their repentance. See, Jesus, or we, we see Jesus wanting people to come to repentance. God the Father doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, as it says in the book of Ezekiel 18 and chapters, chapter 18 and chapter 33. He says, but God, God himself delights that the wicked would turn from their sinful way and live. So we have to understand that man by his nature is rebellion, and we are to reject that rebellion. We're to reject that rebellion. We have to reject it outright. We say we can't be a part of man's rebellion toward God. Why? Because it's a losing cause. Man is not going to win. Man can have all the great pomp and circumstance, and he can say and boast about a lot of different things, but that doesn't that doesn't mean a thing in the sight of God. It's God that we look to. We have to reject rebellion. And what does that mean? How do we reject rebellion? How do we go about that? Or how does man do it? First of all, what man does is he spurns the scriptures. He spurns the scriptures. He doesn't want to listen to the word of God. That's usually the first thing that man has to explain away. Because the Bible, again, indicts him. Man, sinful man doesn't like to hear the word of God. But that's exactly, because we see on there that they reject the word in your text. They reject it. They say they don't want it as they were destined to do. They spurn the scriptures, but it's the very scriptures that talk about Jesus and indict each one of us. And then Jesus presents himself to us, reminding us that no matter what happens in this world, just like David showed us that big galaxy, and I have no idea what you were saying about the dollar bills. All I got was, is it's huge. Uh, I, and I'm looking at this massive thing, and I'm thinking, wow, what did Jesus say? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Out of all of the galaxies in the world, and we're finding more and more as, as different satellites go out into space, we find out there are more galaxies and more planets and it goes on, and as he mentioned, there's billions of light years involved, and God is yet bigger than that. And Jesus is saying, heaven and earth, all of that will pass away, but my word will never pass away. We can't erase the word of God. We can't be like Thomas Jefferson did and cut out the parts of the word of God we don't like. We can't do that. We have to let God be who he is and respond to it. The second thing that unbelievers do or man in his rebellious state does, I mean, first of all, he spurns the scriptures, but he also scorns the Savior. You know that? He scorns the Savior. I remember talking with a man one time. I was on a train and I started to speak to him about Jesus. And he said, you know, 
I like everything about Christianity, but I just don't like Jesus. I said, well, we have a massive problem. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of the focal point of the whole thing. Because people, people want to do all these things with Jesus. We're trying to find, and some historians try to find what they call the historical Jesus because they reject all the things the scriptures say about him because he did miracles. And they say that's not normal. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's called a miracle. Just because a person has gone to a lot of schools and has a lot of initials by their name doesn't mean they're smart. But they try to scorn the Savior. They try to explain him away or just see him as a great moral teacher, and they try to take what they want about Jesus and not everything of who he is. But this is where I love C.S. Lewis and what he says about Jesus. I want us to see this quote up here about Jesus, what he he says, and he's talking to different men, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying, saying the really foolish thing that people often try to say about him. People try to say all these different things about who Jesus is. And he's saying, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't pick and choose what you want of Jesus. You get the whole package or nothing at all. That's it. And he goes on. He says, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. We have a problem with that. Why? Because Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He put himself in line as the great I am. That's why the Jews wanted to kill him. He can't be a great teacher and claim to be God. You can't just say he's a great teacher and him claim to be God. He's got to be a nut job. I had a man in my church when I was in Chicago who came in my office and he, he had some serious mental illness and he was on medication. Um, and when he took his medication, he was very good. But when he didn't, he was very bad. And he came into my office one time believing he was Jesus. And there's another time that he believed he was the Antichrist. You know, there's, there, we don't have, I, I, I mean, I can look at him and say, you're definitely not Jesus. <laughs> or, or like the, the Hindu guru several years ago who, who said that he could walk on water and even charged admission, had a showing. He was going to show how everybody that he walked on water. Charged everybody $100 to come in and watch him walk on water. And everybody watched as he, he had his robes on, and he took them off, and he stepped in the water and went, Vroom! and he gets up and he says, there's an unbeliever here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of them. See, Jesus is the only one who claimed it and then backed it up. See, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man, as Lewis says, and said the sort of thing Jesus said would, be a great, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. See, see people want to scorn him, and they, they just want to reject him. And some are like, he's no big deal. Then why do you use his name as profanity? I don't see you doing that with other people. I don't watch you. Saying, I mean, you may or may not like the President of the United States, but I don't see them you know, using his, his name as a curse word. We don't, do we? See, people want to scorn and get rid of the Savior. That's what unbelievers do. And we can't be surprised when natural man says all this stuff about Jesus. We can't be surprised when we see in the news how they have tried to bring him off of his throne. We can't be surprised at that. Because that's exactly what unbelieving man does. That's what Satan wants to do. Satan is God's enemy. And he tries to masquerade as an angel of light. He does everything he can to discredit the name of Jesus. That's what man does in his natural state. So we must make sure that we are not spurning the scriptures. And that we are not scorning the Savior. That's what we cannot do. People cannot escape Jesus. We could try to explain him away. Sweep him under the rug. But he can't be moved. Now what will happen though if we, re we reject Jesus? Look at verse 6 in your text. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, what I, we, we have to look in what it's saying and what it's also implying. Those who believe will not be put to shame, but the logical implication is, is that those who don't believe 
will be put to shame. See, if you reject Jesus, you're going to suffer shame. Suffer shame. And this is a shame that doesn't go away. Have you ever experienced shame? I think every one of this room has. We've all suffered shame in some way, shape, or form. But rejecting the Son of God, to spend eternity remembering in, in the knowledge that we rejected God's Son, that we were wrong, and can't change that then. So it's like the story of the woman who bought a batch of cookies at an airport. She was hungry and she was waiting on her flight. Perhaps you've heard this story. She, she went into one of the little stores there and she got some cookies and um, got a novel. She went and sat down in one of the seats. And uh, she's sitting there and she's, there's a man sitting right beside her. Or a seat is in between them. And she looks down and she sees him reaching in and eating her cookies. She can't believe that this guy is eating her cookies. How, how big of a jerk is this guy? And she just gives him this really dirty look. Like, how dare you? And he just smiles. <laughs> and she's eating the cookies. And then she, she keeps reading on and she sees him do it again. And so she starts grabbing a cookie and eating it like, how, how dare you eat my cookies? Just, she just couldn't believe this guy. And finally, she noticed that this kept going on and on, and she kept more and more mad. She couldn't even focus on the book. She was so angry. And she wanted to say something, but she didn't know what to say. And finally, he looks at her, and there's one cookie left, and he pushes it over to her. And she grabs a cookie, sticks it in her mouth. She's just furiously hot mad. And she sees that it's time to get on board her flight. She grabs her purse. She, she goes to the gate. She walks in, sits down on her flight, opens up her purse, and there's her cookie. She had been eating his cookies. And then she felt awful. Here, see, she was mad at him, thinking that he was stealing her cookies, and he was offering it to her. And she just felt awful. She felt so much shame, and she couldn't go back and change it. She was already on her destination. See, that's how it will be for those who reject Jesus. See, many people think that Jesus is, or God is stealing from them, and God owes them something. And it's really that we who owe God something and that we're stealing from him. And then when we're that end of that des when we get on that plane, that see our, when we head off to our eternal destination, we die, there'll be that knowledge that we were wrong. Or those who rejected him were wrong. The unbeliever will suffer shame. An incredible and awful shame. So we see that's what happens. We, and we can't participate in man's rebellion. We can't spurn the scriptures, but we must adhere to the scriptures and do what the scriptures say. We can't scorn the Savior. We must adore the Savior and offer our lives to him day by day. See, that's what that word is as you are coming to him, making your lives a spiritual sacrifice. The idea is a constant See, we are to be coming to him day after day. What did Jesus say? If you were to take up my cross, how often? Daily, day by day. See, it's day by day that we enter into the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. By faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is a great verse, and I would really encourage you to memorize it if you haven't already. For the scripture says this, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. See, what that means is, is that us, by taking up our cross, we are entering into his death by faith. But we realize that means we're dying to self each day. Dying to ourself. So that we might live the resurrection life that Christ had. That Romans chapter 6, verse 3 talks about. Let us walk in newness of life. It's new. We're no longer bound to our old sinful flesh, but we are to walk in the newness of life that has been afforded to us by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is symbolized by our baptism. Our baptism is the greatest symbol of that new relationship. It's where we, by faith in him, show that we are dead to sin as we go under the water. And just like Jesus went into the tomb, and he came out of the tomb in resurrection life, and we come out of the water 
It is the deepest symbol showing the relationship that we now have with Jesus Christ. So we need to make sure that we are rejecting rebellion. See, unbelieving man rejects the stone. That living stone, the one that's alive, the one that's the foundation of everything that is, of God's plan of redemption. We must make sure that we are responding to this revolution. We need to be rejoicing in the fact that God has saved us and then made us what in the text? What's it say? We are now living stones. We are now a holy priesthood. We are being built up. And the idea is living stones is God is taking each one of us in all of our uniqueness, and, he's, and it's the same type of picture of us being chosen because we're in him and building us up into what he has us to be. God has got a plan for you. Doesn't that excite you? That should give you encouragement. That should help you get through the day to know that God is, has a purpose for your life and that he is building you, that he is using you and has a desire and a ministry just for you that he has gifted you. The moment that you came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he gives you a spiritual gift. That is a unique ability endowed by the Spirit of God for you to serve and use to serve the greater body of Christ and to make the name of Christ and the glory of God made known in the world. That's what he's gifted you to do. What's your gift? Or how's the condition of your spiritual house? How about that? What is the condition of your spiritual house? We have to rejoice in, your, in, in being a part of this revolution. And that involves understanding that we are God's spiritual house. That's what God has made us into, his spiritual house. C.S. Lewis said this about being this house, and I love this quote. He says, imagine you, are, you yourself as a living house. God comes in to build that house. In other words, God, it's the same picture here. Your spiritual house. God, by his spirit, comes into you, into your life. He wants to transform you. He wants to use you. He wants to mold you. He wants to, to conform you to the image of his son. He wants to make you look like Jesus. That's what God wants to do. He comes into your living house to rebuild it. Now, when he comes in, first of all, he comes in, you, we think, you know, we want a little help. They come in just to stop the drains and all the little stuff that needs to get done in the house. You have that list. Do you have that list, Mondo? The honey-do list that she has for you, the stuff that you need to fix? I have a very large list. And I have drills and lamps and things just sitting in places that need to be done. I mean, we all have that, that, that faucet that won't stop dripping. That drain needs to be unclogged. Right? That, that short, I have this short in my, my bathroom. You turn on the bathroom light, and there's a light bulb that just never goes on. But if I touch it, it goes on. I don't know why it does that. There's all these little things that need to be fixed. See, when Jesus, the divine contractor, comes into your place, you want him to fix all those things. But then he starts doing remodeling. Now, we have a remodel going on in our house. It starts tomorrow morning. We're having our, our kitchen redone. And that is inconvenient to say the least. Uh, we, got a, uh, we had this planned in, um, for a long time ago. It was supposed to happen last summer, and it kept getting moved back. And so our contractor came in in January, and he said, uh, yeah, we're, we're planning to do it actually in December. He goes, we want to do it in late January. So I, and I, I've, I've got experience now working with contractors, so I was translating what he was saying. I said, so you mean like March, right? That's what you mean. And he smiled, and I think he was mad. And now he, he moves it up two weeks <laughs> just to mess with me. And so they call, call us on Thursday, and they said, yeah, we're doing demo on Monday. So you have to clear out your entire kitchen and your entire dining room and get ready for this project. And my wife is uh, freaking out is a good term to use. And she's like, what am I going to do? How do I pack the place? And I'm like, honey, I, she, she's I, in a way she's kind of complaining. I'm like, you're getting a brand new kitchen. And she's looking at me like, are you kidding me? Did you really just say that to me? And I, I, I laughed, and she goes, are you not freaking out? I'm like, oh, I'm freaking out. I mean, I don't know. Where do I go and get my coffee in the morning? I don't know. <laughs> and we're telling our kids, we're like, the refrigerator's going to have to go in the living room. And Eliana's like, I don't like the refrigerator in the living room. It's not good. I'm like, it's not going to be there forever. 
Oh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's inconvenient. Why? Because there's renovation being done. See, that's what Lewis was talking about here. God is coming in to renovate your life. He's coming in to transform it. And you know what? It's painful, and it's going to be inconvenient, and it's going to hurt. But you know, he's doing something amazing, and when that kitchen's done, I'm going to be happy. But going through it, it's going to be painful, and it's going to hurt. See, that's what God wants to do in your life. That's what Lewis was talking about. What he wants to do is not just make you a little cottage. That's the second part of this this quote here. He, He goes on, and he says, the explanation that he's building, he's building something quite different than you originally imagined. You just wanted a little fixing up. He's coming in to transform the place. This is God's ultimate extreme home makeover going on. He's, he's throwing out a new wing. He's putting on an extra floor, running up towers and courtyards. You thought you were going to be a decent little college cottage. But what he's doing, he's building you into a palace. That's what God's doing in your life. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take you and transform you. He wants to renovate make you into a palace, his spiritual house. We should rejoice in that. It's painful to know that 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 remodeling job, we should rejoice in it. We should celebrate it. Every time that, that, I mean, they're coming in with sledgehammers and pulling things off the wall, that's painful, but it's necessary. God's working in your life. All of the struggles that you're going through, all of these painful situations, he's using it to mold you into the image of his son. You should celebrate that. So this this revolution we can see involves us being made into God's house. But it's also a little bit of something else. It is to be done habitually. See, the idea is that we come Every time we come to Jesus, and that's what's going on in the text in verse 4, as you literally are coming to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, precious, you yourselves are living stones being built into God's spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through God, uh, to God through Jesus Christ. See, God is transforming you. The idea is, is that we come and offer sacrifices again and again and again. See, when it says in the text that we're made into a priesthood, a holy priesthood, that, that's a very unique picture for a Jew. Because only the Levites were qualified to be priests, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And even then, certain, only certain Levites could serve in the priesthood. You had to be between 30, 31, and 50. You couldn't have any skin problems or any physical abnormalities. You had to be, in essence, spotless and at your peak. Only they could serve as priests. No one else could. So it's saying here that we are made into that holy priesthood. God is making us and chosen us to set apart, to make spiritual sacrifices. Now, how often were spiritual sacrifices made? I mean, most of the time they're made daily. How often are we to take up our cross again? Daily. Daily. To be doing it every day, to crucify our flesh day in and day out. To appropriate Jesus' death as our own by faith. So we're to do this habitually. We're to seek God day in and day out. Are you doing that? Many of us try to live like a Christian on Sunday morning. You can't live as a pagan six days of the week and then be a Christian on Sunday. God doesn't just want you for one day and a part of your life. He wants all of your life. See, that's the other part there. Not only are we to do this habitually, to participate within this revolution, we have to do it holistically. Holistically. See, if you're a priest, you're on. That's your life. That's who you are. It involves every part of you. And a sacrifice, when we says we offer spiritual sacrifices, you give everything. When they would give sacrifices in the Old Testament, did they just give part of the lamb? Is that what all they did is just give part of the lamb? They gave the entire thing, right? You didn't say to the, the priest, oh yeah, I'm going to give this lamb, but let me just cut off a leg and keep for myself. 
They don't do that. They gave the entire, entire thing. It's to be holistic. But what does that mean to be a spiritual sacrifice or to offer spiritual sacrifices? Now, there's not one Bible text that gives us a description of that, but there are many that kind of give an overall view of it. And the most specific one is Romans chapter 12. Here we go. Romans chapter 12, one, actually verse 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does that mean? It, it, it's not literally that we go and lay ourselves down at the altar, but it really says is I'm offering the entirety of my life to your service, God. The entirety of my life, which means that I'm not just a Christian and then my business doesn't reflect that. See, when you come to follow Jesus, God wants every part of your life. See, one of the, the mistakes that I made when I was a teenager is that I, was, I, I feared God, but I wanted to have fun. I wanted the world. I wanted everything about it. See, I didn't realize that when... when when God calls us, he wants to surrender everything of who we are. And when I finally realized that, I surrendered my life. I was 18 years old, and he took over every part of my life, and it was rough. I mean, he was coming in, making all new renovations, and it was hard. But see, God wants every part of us. He wants your business. He wants your job. When you work, are you doing it just to please your boss, your earthly boss? You know what the scripture says in Colossians chapter 3? That we're not just to work uh, as a way of pleasing men, but we're working for the Lord Christ. You need to imagine Jesus as your boss. How are you at your work? How are you at your relationships? How are you at your entertainment? Can you see Jesus in your, in your entertainment choices? In this generation, I think we struggle with that more than almost anything else it's everywhere. We like movies. We like a good, a good show, but not every show is good. Matter of fact, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Profane and just the banality of things. And God even wants our entertainment. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go watch every Jeanette Okie Fadoki movie. Okay? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that is that, is this show that you're about to watch or is this action you're about to do, is it, is it pleasing in the sight of God? And I have to ask myself that question. I fail in that all the time. That's probably one of my biggest struggles. I even share that with my wife. How do I become better at that? Because the show will come on and I'll just excuse it and I realize, no, that's not what God wants. And I've learned now that there are certain shows I just don't go to. How are, how are we all doing that? Are we offering ourselves up as spiritual sacrifices? Are we habitually and holistically pursuing the Savior? That's what God is requiring of us. And not only that, we see that there is a destination for each one of us if we participate in this revolution. We receive unbelievable, incredible honor. Look at your text. Verse 8, or verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's what happens to all who reject Christ. They are destined to stumble. But for us who believe, we're going to have incredible honor, unbelievable honor. You know, one thing about any type of reward you get, it's not necessarily just in the accomplishment. I mean, it's one thing to receive a medal or a recognition for something, but the honor is not just receiving that, but it's usually, and even magnified even more, according to the person who's giving you the honor. If we were in the UK, if we were Brits, we could get a reward or an award for something. It's one thing to be honored on that, but it's one thing if the queen herself does it, right? That's an even greater honor. You have to be trained in how you're going to, it's the queen, the greatest one. She's the one that's doing that. It's, it's an even more huge honor because of who is doing it. And for us, we will be honored by Almighty God. Be honored by, by God himself for, for believing and trusting in him. Think about that. You'll be honored for your faithfulness to Jesus. 
And again, it's not based based upon what you have done, but of what Jesus has done. Believing that, receiving it, surrendering your life on a daily basis. And then God begins to work in you in a pretty profound way, bringing his name glory, and then even giving you reward for it. Do you know that? That's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon of the Mount. Great will your reward be. Great will your reward be. Great will your reward be. And once we get that reward, we'll offer it back to Jesus. Lay down our crowns. We want to participate in that revolution. That's what we need to do. We have to receive His redemption. We have to reject man's rebellion. We can't participate in that rebellion. We can't stay loyal to that kingdom that is passing away. But instead, we must rejoice of being a part of this revolution. One of the stories that I uncovered this past year when I was studying American history was the story of William Temple Franklin. It was Benjamin Franklin's son. Benjamin Franklin's son, for those that didn't know, became the colonial governor of New Jersey before the revolution. He was appointed. He and his father were both, both very loyal British subjects, as many of the founding fathers were. But when rebellion started to occur, the talk of revolution started to occur to overthrow the British occupation and the tyranny that was involved. Franklin sided with the American revolutionaries, while his son, though, stayed loyal to the British crown. Eventually, it led to his arrest, and then after the, uh, he was kind of placed in house arrest, but then after July 4th, 1776, he was formally detained because he stayed true to the British crown and that kingdom. But that kingdom was passing away. And eventually, he had to leave, or he left of his own volition. He went to England, where he became more of a faithful Brit. But see, we look at him, and if the British would have won, he would have been deemed a hero. But he wasn't. He's deemed, in some ways, a traitor. He's on the enemy's side. Did you know that God's kingdom is breaking in? And there are many people that want to stay loyal to this world's order. Stay loyal to this world's order, you'll be deemed a traitor. You'll be rejected by God. But participate in God's revolution that's breaking in in the hearts of men. You're going to find yourself a stranger in this world. That's what the series is entitled, Strangers in a Strange Land. And right now, we are strangers. Why? Because we are following God's word. And his word is... is man is rebelling against his word. They don't want to be a part of it. They don't want to have it. But his kingdom is breaking in in the hearts of men, and it continues to break in by faith as people receive him and follow him as Lord and Savior of their lives. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what's transforming hearts and minds as people are seeing the power of the gospel of God, that it can forgive sins, give us purpose, and give us hope in this world. And we are strangers in this land, so that we will find our home in heaven. Because that kingdom's breaking in. That kingdom is going to come to fruition. Jesus is coming again. We don't talk about that enough. But he's coming again and he's going to set up his kingdom. He's the rightful ruler. And that kingdom is breaking in in the hearts of men and women all over. And it's going to continue to break in. But man is going to continue in his rebellion until the end of that day. So we can't be surprised at that rebellion. But we need to rejoice at our place in that revolution. Knowing that God is going to establish his kingdom and bring it to fruition. And it's going to be a great celebration. And that's my last thought for us today. For each one of us, we have to ask ourselves that, that question. And what part am I playing? Am I a part of man's rebellion? Or am I part of God's revolution? This one's going to win. This one might look sweet right now. Just like in the Revolutionary War, the British seemed like they had it won several different times. And this ragtag army that was starving, that was running from place to place, people were deserting left and right, was somehow molded into be a wonderful army, and they outlasted this other army. And they won. See, that's us. That's us. We're that ragtag group of people, and we know of people that have deserted the ranks. 
We know that if those who haven't done, I mean, we're, we feel like we're starving at times. We feel like we're struggling, but that army will win. Why? Because Jesus said that the gates of hell, hell shall not prevail against that army. And that's God's church. So, where are you in, that re- in this, this story? Part of the man's rebellion? God's revolution. You can change sides. Hopefully you're not re- leaving from man's revolution, God's revolution, man's rebellion, but you're turning from man's rebellion because God will accept you as his own. He likes to take those that are his enemies and make him his children. And he does that today, and it's offered to each one of us. He offers his free gift of salvation to you that if you repent of your sins and receive him as Savior, he will save you. He will wipe your sins away and give you his righteousness, make you his child, and transform your life for his glory and your joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you humbly, knowing that your revolution is breaking forth all over. It's breaking forth in Aurora and in Illinois. It's breaking forth in different places all over the United States. It's breaking forth all over the world, in South America and Africa and Asia and Europe. Lord, seeing how people are receiving you as Lord and Savior, are placing their lives under your Lordship by following your word. Lord, forgive us for the rebellion that is in our hearts. May we not be participants in the rebellion of man and the enemy. Lord, and every time that we sin, may we turn back to you. May we realize that you paid the price for our sins, enabling us to be recipients of your salvation. Forgive us when we fail. Forgive us when we fall. And by your spirit, help us to put to death the rebellious nature that is within each one of us and appropriate by faith your crucifixion and resurrection as our own that we might live the life of the Son of God. Lord, I know that there are those that are struggling that know that they are a part of man's rebellion. I pray that you convict them of their sin. Let them see that they can have redemption. May they come to you, believing in you, and you will transform them. And Lord, each one of us, may we take up arms. May we fight alongside you in peace and love, just as, just as Jesus himself did. Lord, his life is the message. It's an indictment to man's sinfulness, but it's also an offer of salvation. Lord, please glorify yourself in our church. Glorify yourself in our community and across the world. And use us in this place to be lighthouses in the midst of a dark place. Lord, to know that the rebels that we encounter each and every day have that opportunity to become sons and daughters of the Most High King. Lord, glorify your name in us. And may you receive praise through us. In Jesus' name, amen.